Star Talk. All Stars. Science. That's how it all starts. The hallmark of an all star team combines the best minds from all over the scene. We got friends of the show coming back, bringing laughs, jokes, and they're also dropping facts. So kick back, relax, and unwind. What you're going to find is going to blow your mind. Hi, I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, host of Star Talk Radio. I've recruited a crack team of scientists and science educators to help me bring the universe down to Earth. And they are the Star Talk Stars. Welcome to Star Talk All Stars. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, and this week is a special mashup edition. You'll hear like mishmash of some of our favorite moments around a specific topic within a range of show hosts, expert guests, and co-hosts. This week, climate change. Check it out. Greetings, greetings, everyone, Star Trek viewers and listeners. We're here with Chuck Nice. Hey. And to help us out, we brought back a science expert who you may remember from a Star Talk radio episode on Nat Geo, Dr. Radley Horton. Dr. Horton, it's great to see you. Radley is, as I call him, I call him Radley. He's a climate scientist at the Center for Climate Systems Research at Columbia University. His research focuses on extreme weather events, the limitations of climate models, and adaptation to climate change. Thanks for joining us on Star Talk All Stars. Radley, Rad, the man. Rad. You're a climate science expert. Uh, we got some issues. <laughs> we have some uh, things coming up that could be troublesome. Okay, so here's a specific question from me. I've wondered really for years. We are now, or you rather, are now able to tie extreme heat events to climate change. And you do this with computer models. That's absolutely right. Wrong. Sorry. <laughs> that was your... Uh, I help it. I, you know, I don't know where that reflex came from. <laughs> I'm going to get you back for that later. Yeah. <laughs> wow, you guys, that's quite a commentary, Dr. Nice. She was, sorry, rad. Go ahead, Go ahead rad. Okay, yeah, so, I mean, we use a variety of tools. Um, looking at the historical trends, we've seen um, heat waves becoming much more frequent around the globe. Um, more intense events when they're happening with the temperatures higher and longer lasting. But you're right, we also use climate models. That's a key piece. Um, we can use those climate models, running them out into the future. By model, we're talking about software, people writing code. That's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah run on supercomputers generally. You can run experiments where you put more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, essentially the experiment that we're running on Earth right now by yeah. burning all these fossil fuels. But we can move into the future with these models putting in even higher levels of fossil fossil fuels, for example, and see that the frequency of those extreme heat events will become even more frequent. So that helps us attribute these heat waves to greenhouse like gases. Like it's a uh, coincidence, you decide. Let's be for real. Those are just numbers. I mean, you're taking numbers, you're putting them into a machine that does more things with numbers, and then you're just coming hey, up with numbers. Hey, what you get paid for this show is just numbers. <laughs> <laughs> they're just, do you get paid? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're just so, so they're, they're, You know, so how, 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 how can we rely on your models? Well, there's some important points, I think, embedded within there. Um, there are some uncertainties, right? We can't tell you exactly when a tornado is going to happen two weeks from now. We can't necessarily tell you the exact weather two weeks from now. But what we can see is that the statistics of extreme events are changing. If you're planning for the future, five years from now, 10 years... Five years? 
Wow. That's right around the corner. God. Yeah. You sound like my high school guidance counselor. Uh, <laughs> Five years. Look, what, look how well you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, I think he's a little better than your high school. Yeah, I think. No, I, I think I'm. I think he's very bitter right now. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Five um, years from now, uh, the statistics in some places already shifting. Sea levels rising a little bit. That baseline, as the oceans warm, as land-based ice melts into the ocean, mm-hmm. the baseline rises. Even if coastal storms don't change at all, just having that higher baseline, that mm-hmm. higher floor of the sea level is going to mean much more frequent coastal flooding. We can't tell you the exact day, but if you're planning infrastructure... When the wind blows, there's, it's, the water's right. already higher. Exactly. And aren't we seeing that now? I mean, with just regular storms, we just had a nor'easter here. And we it was nor and easting. <laughs> it was nor. It was easting. <laughs> it was blowing. And uh, and we saw a great deal of coastal flooding without mm-hmm. a lot of rainfall. Yeah. And, and so is that that's what you're talking about, right? And the reason the ocean's rising is getting bigger, right? You warm up that much water, it swells. It's a combination of two two primary factors. Yeah, it's, it's as it warms, it expands. Also, we're having some of the ice that has been locked on land in Greenland and West Antarctica so it's making its way into the oceans, exactly. I was in Greenland this summer. I use the term summer. It's 20 below <laughs> at noon. Uh, and the evidence is incontrovertible. You know, these guys are drilling a new core, the East Greenland uh, Ice Core Research Project. They're drilling a new hole. And you pull out the ice, you can count the snow letters, you can count neutrons, you can look at the bubbles of the ancient atmosphere. It's just, oh, man. Yeah. So you guys, everybody, panel, mm-hmm. how do we deal with this? We have right now the world's most influential country is being... The executive branch is headed by people who are nominally in denial of climate change. <laughs> nominally. <laughs> I like well, that. Well, you always wonder, I always wonder how serious they are about it. You know, like. I mean, are they really serious or is it just a matter of money? I tend to think that it is like uh, the tobacco industry where, oh, come on, we know it causes cancer. We just can't say that. You know, it's that type of deal. I think it's just a matter of money. Rad, you're shaking your head. I'm nodding your head. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that I think that's absolutely right. I mean, really, most politicians aren't going to lead in some sense. You know, that's often the case. If the public speaks, if we see this issue rising higher um, um, in terms of what people are saying they care about, and I think part of it is us doing a better job messaging, um, talking about the health risks of climate change, for example. People don't realize that heat waves are a leading killer today. That's going to increase in the future. People don't realize that they're Houses near the coast are at risk in the lifetime of their mortgages in some cases. Um, And part of it is this disinformation campaign, really, that you alluded to. Um, There have been powerful interests that, for a variety of reasons, have tried to hide those risks. I think that's part of it. Part of it is, I think, maybe even simpler human nature that some people run away from bad news. So it's a variety of factors, but some of it is definitely what you're talking about, this not disclosing the risks, because of the policy implications and maybe because you're worried about longer term getting sued for some of these damages. Yeah. So it's actually time for Cosmic Queries. Yes, it is. And of course, that is where we take uh, queries from all over the interwebs, wherever we are found. So, Rad, you're down with Cosmic Queries. Let's go. Yeah, we'll feel People turn to you. Send in questions and, are, yeah. and then you answer them. Our, um, 
tremendously engaged Star Talk audience, as smart as they are. They send us questions. What are you doing here? Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> so uh, the first one we always take is from a Patreon patron, and uh, Tim Shaw wants to know this. What kind of climate change influence disaster will need to happen before the majority of the world takes it seriously and takes action on climate change. I'm optimistic that the human race possesses everything we need right now to fight climate change effectively, but pessimistic when I see the current trend in politics. So let me note well, the majority of the world is concerned about climate change. The United States is the minority. We're the problem, right? Yeah. Rad, you were going to say. Yeah, I, th I agree with the sentiments of this question um, a lot. I think that we could move fairly quickly, right? We're already starting to see some renewables pricing around the same level as fossil fuels. The trends are all towards solar, wind becoming much cheaper. Um, we may be at the cusp of, of a real revolution on the green energy uh, side of things. Of course, there also is a lot of reason for pessimism. We know about the fossil fuels, the carbon dioxide already baked into the atmosphere. We're learning that we may have already committed to additional sea level rise because of greenhouse gases we already put in the air. To the specific aspect of this question, though, of what's it going to take to spur people into action, mm -hmm. I think back-to-back -back extreme events in a certain place can have a big effect. So, you know, that second hurricane, mm -hmm. you know. Katrina and Rita. Yeah, something right. like that. Um could really have a big effect. Another one that I think is interesting to discuss, I'd love your thoughts on this, something remote. What about loss of sea ice in the Arctic, right? Most of us think, who cares about Arctic sea ice? But this is an iconic thing. We've had Arctic sea ice in the Northern Hemisphere for hundreds of thousands of years. Our good buddy uh, Santa Claus and it's, <laughs> lives it's, there. It's going. I mean, the volume of late summer um, sea ice in the Arctic is down over 50% in the last three or four decades. I think that there are some feedbacks underway there. You know, as you lose some of that initial ice, sunlight is able to penetrate into the ocean, the dark surface, where it can absorb that sunlight instead of reflecting off the white surface. more ice, more feedback. More heat. You can make the case, I, I would say most scientists aren't there, but you can make the case that sometime in the next five, 10 years, we could have that ice-free summer in the Arctic. I'm not saying it's a 50-50 chance, but if it happens, how well, would people react? In the next react? 20 years. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Absolutely the upside fine. is I can go swimming in the Arctic now. Well, the upside is you can drive your boat from Finland to Japan. Well, unfortunately, there's a, they're already fighting over shipping lanes and things of that yeah. nature, which is I think is awful. The fact Who's that, they? Uh, countries. So the United States and Russia right now, they're, everybody's taking their claim to the I thought we were friends. <laughs> yeah. yeah, everybody's uh, staking their claim to the uh, who's going to be able to uh, have the rights to these open shipping lines now because there's no ice there. To we can we have air traffic that should be outfigurable. Get us another cosmic. Here's query. another cosmic query. Uh, Hello, Bill, uh, Steve from the Netherlands here, um, a country that might one day partially disappeared due to rising seawater levels, though we try very hard to keep the sea where it is. But just in case we fail, which country is least affected by climate change? Red? Hmm. Dr. Horton? 
So the first thing I would say here is that every country is going to be affected in a major way. You can't just look immediately at how the climate's going to change in any one place, right? If the developing world um, with its large populations and high temperatures um, starts to have more and more droughts among these vulnerable communities, that's going to have impacts on the whole world. It's going to impact the price of food everywhere. Um, even more if conflicts. You, more conflicts, yeah. We're all going to be impacted. If you had to answer the question directly, you, you know, locally, where might climate changes be the least impactful? You'd probably look at a place in the mid to high latitudes where it's not real hot right now, where winters are really intense. Norway? Yeah, maybe the west coast of the U.S., west coast of southern, southern Canada. Are we going to have droughts on the west coast of the U.S.? It's a you know, real, real, real risk, absolutely, especially further south, maybe, as temperatures rise. I think that um, no places are going to be net win um, if we have major climate change. It's just going to be some places may suffer less than others. Great. Mm. All right. I'm going to make my uh, vacation plans now. Okay. Do you have another query? Let's go back to our queries. queries and uh, they're cosmic man. They're cosmic man. Here we are. This is Adam McSweeney uh, from Twitter. Says, how can people that openly ignore climate change evidence be convinced, convinced that investing in renewables is worthwhile anyway? So, is there an argument to be made aside from climate change? that might bring more people to the side of renewable energy? Well, I think it's a very good question. Because uh, uh, So forget, let's take climate change off the table. Mm-hmm. Screw you. I, okay, you, you don't believe in climate change? That's great. Okay? L- what now? Now what, here's what you, here's why you should go to renewables. Already, you have price parity um, in many parts of the U.S. Solar and wind uh, at the same cost as traditional fossil you get fuels. Everybody, when you get down at to one point eight cents a kilowatt, then you're yeah. in the game. Better. Two cents a quick kilowatt, you're almost in the game. Okay. Yeah. Um, air quality, um, you don't have any of these other particulates that are associated with burning of fossil fuels, combustion engines, separate from the greenhouse gas uh, mm-hmm. issue. And then we heard about energy independence uh, earlier. Yeah, and so the, if you want to have tariffs on things, how about imported oil? There yeah. you go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, if you did that, then wind and solar be- and geothermal become competitive in an instant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but if we so, put tariffs on oil, we might hurt our besties' feelings, Mr. Putin. Uh, oh, I see. You're, you're being especially political today. <laughs> I know. Charles. What's wrong with me? I am just shocked. <laughs> just shocked. So uh, I was in Stanton, Texas, which is uh, the zip code adjacent to Midland, Texas, uh, where I used to work as a young man, as an engineer in the oil patch. And there are wind turbines above the oil pumps, mm. like in the same picture. Wind turbines uh, casting shadows on oil pumps. And they're doing that because the wind is free. And uh, when the price of oil got extremely low because of the success of fracking, uh, well, then it's not competitive anymore. But the wind's always blowing for free. Oh, that's cool. I thought I actually thought that you meant uh, they're running the oil pumps with wind turbines, which would be awesome. <laughs> actually, okay. that might be happening at some grid level thing because yeah. oil pumps are electric. There's right. A lot of there are a lot of um, internal combustion sort of lawnmower engines in the oil field, but 
there's a lot of electricity all over the place, too. That is an interesting point that, of interest. That'd be great. You should be investigating that <laughs> exactly. instead of sitting here thinking thoughts. <laughs> Texas is now leading in, uh, in wind energy, isn't it? I think the and Iowa has, gets 25% of its electricity from the wind, a quarter of it, without any subsidies as such, without, uh, without the, the enormous subsidies that oil companies get, or oil production gets. Um, this is Tim by Trade. Tim wants to know this. Hey, Bill and Chuck, when scientists study climate change, I don't know why he's asking me, like I know something. Uh, Well, you're a comedic (laughs) co-host. That's true. Uh, When scientists study climate change, have we reached the point where the research inherently seeks preventative measures, or is it still research of strictly observational and analytical in nature? Also, seriously, how much public funding would it take for you to run for president? That's to you. All right, so let me start with the present question. Normally, all my experience, all my life, I'm, I'm over 60 years old now. The people you hire to run for president or to work as president are people with some government experience. That's how we used to do it. And I think we will again. I've never been a government official. I've never uh, run for office, so I may not be the most qualified for this. However, Chuck, I'll tell you right now, Dr. Horton, if they asked me to be a science advisor or the Office of Science and Technology Policy or something like that, I would certainly embrace that just to talk about me. Me, me, me. Now, where were we? Yeah, preventative measures, Dr. Horton. Preventative measures. Yeah, so this, I think, is the pointing towards some of the exciting research that's happening around reducing greenhouse gas emissions, capturing carbon from the atmosphere. Is that really practical? I mean, it's, uh, those are molecules. These are hard old things. Yeah. You need a lot of something to react with that, right? Yes. Well, isn't that what they're talking about with, like, algae farms and that kind of, you know, those, trees, those yeah. trees and things of that nature? Yeah. I mean, I, I think certainly nothing is to scale yet where, you know, cost-wise, you can pull anything out of the atmosphere. The challenge is always with new technologies, what might be possible a few decades from now or, or more. Maybe it's 50 years from now. I tend to agree, though, it's, it's very risky for us to go down this route of saying, oh, we can emit now, we'll get it out of the atmosphere. Atmosphere later, there's no evidence that we're able to 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 extract that additional carbon from the atmosphere. But there is important research around tons, renewables, billions yeah. of tons of something, right? Um, but there is research on adapting to climate change also, right? We're not going to be able to prepare for all of these climate changes, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do. You know, we're locked into some more sea level rise, Miami some Beach more high on stilts. Yeah, I mean, Miami Beach is an interesting one, right? That's, as you alluded to the limestone earlier, you know, it may not be possible long term to, to protect Miami Beach, but maybe there are some cities um, where, at least for a few decades, you can hold back the water while we come up with other strategies. Well, in the Netherlands, they have seawalls yeah. and levees. Yeah. And yeah. So they do that. Yeah. And you're seeing some interesting, you know, smaller scale experiments in cities right now, green infrastructure, right? Where you're putting in um, these parks and things with, with drainage underneath captures water during rain. It's going to be exciting. Stay tuned. Start Star Talk All Stars. We'll be back right after this. Welcome to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your host, David Grinspoon. 
a.k.a. Dr. Funky Spoon on Twitter. And I'm here with my co-host, Chuck Nice. Hey, hey, Dr. Funky Spoon. How's it going, Chuck? It's going very well, my friend, as usual. Yeah, always always fun to do this with you. And we're, we're very happy today to have a special guest joining us, uh, Andrew Revkin, who on Twitter is at Revkin. Bingo. That's really uh, that's really catchy. Yeah, you must have gotten like into that. Twitter like very early. I was an early adapter. Early adapter. Really ad- you were an yeah. early adapter to be able to get your last name just like that at Revkin. No numbers. No nothing. Oh, you know what's no. really funny? My older son, who's a, a DJ and works in visual effects, he he's now at Revkin underscore official. So he's Revkin official. <laughs> he's like nudging into my territory. I kind of like it. Oh, that's go Daniel. Funny. Go Daniel. That's funny. Revkin it. official. So so yeah, we were talking about um, are we going off a cliff? Yeah. Is there the point of no return? And that that is something that that one hears, but it is kind of an oversimplification. But it brings us actually to a topic that I wanted to get into a little bit because we have Andy here, and Andy and I are both people that have been at times accused of being too optimistic or maybe not being pessimistic enough on this subject. Uh, There are certain people, uh, including some very um, distinguished and loud voices out there on the interwebs and in the uh, global discussion about the Anthropocene, who get really offended and mad if you say something about how, if you say there's, well, there's potential to turn this in a good direction ultimately. They get, they literally get angry if you say that there could ultimately be something good about the Anthropocene. And my take on this, that, you know, so I wanted to talk about this question of optimism, pessimism, what's realistic, what's helpful, what's not. My take on this, and this is one of the big themes of, of Earth in Human Hands, is that the cosmic view, the long-term view, reinforces a sort of comforting positive view, both in terms of the long-term history of looking at climate history and looking at our own history as a species, the way we've reinvented ourselves at times in response to existential threats and found new ways to cooperate on new scales and invent new social and material technologies. In my view, that's kind of what we need to do. We need to make that next leap and get better at cooperating on a global scale. And there are a lot of, believe it or not, trends that are leading us in the right direction for that. And my view is that if we think about the 22nd and the 23rd century, there are reasons to think that we may actually get to a good place, which is not to diminish the challenges of the 21st century or the, you know, the horrors that we may be in store for. It's to say, let's keep a vision of where we really want to get as a global species in our minds as we deal with these struggles. And that's both comforting and I think actually pragmatically useful, not just to think of the world we want to avoid, but what kind of a world do we want to create? Hmm. So that's kind of my take on this. Andy, I I know you've been involved in this a lot, and I've seen you involved in some, um, I don't want to say fights, what's a more uh, polite way, some disagreements with some some very um, (laughs) persistent voices in this community of environmental ethicists and so forth who, who have taken exception when you've said that the Anthropocene doesn't have to be bad. Well, you know, so much of it comes down to definitions and stuff. Clive Hamilton, one of the critics who called was me de- one of the people I who had called me de- delusional. He, uh, <laughs> any anyone who thinks there's a good path in the Anthropocene is delusional. Um, I, I think, but this gets to the question of good, you know, and it, it's simplistic. The simplistic ways to say, well, I'm talking about a good path in a difficult time. That's easy, you know, like World War II, people forged good lives, even though the world was going coming unglued. 
but you, we can get beyond that. Like uh, I, I spent time a year ago at this place near Vienna called the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis. Sounds like a party town. Yes. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> Although they like, they bring in music. They had like classical music performances. It's a complex systems analysis place. And, okay. and they, they study the human, fu- human futures by running all kinds of scenarios and computers uh, where they have climate change and biodiversity loss and all these things. And they have trajectories. There are scenarios. Uh, they've written this papers on this stuff um, that have the world in 2300 as um, basically having like 2 billion pretty happy people and tons of room for nature and nothing calamitous in between now and then. Wow. Like, I in other words, idea. Now, wait a I know. I, mean, I'm, I was going to say, now, that's an actual computer simulation, or, <laughs> or that's some dude just going, Dear Diary. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, end, the end state sounds completely believable to me. I mean, sure. if you look at climate projections, most climate projections show population peaking and then starting to decline mm-hmm. because. Uh, for the right reasons, because fertility is declining because standards of, of living globally are rising, especially in some of, some of these places that are the most poor. Either and, way, it is a decline in emissions. Well, that's, that's yeah. right. Exactly. No, that's emissions right. will follow population, but not in a simple way because standards of living go up. People want more I energy. I was making a sex joke. So, completely yeah. different oh, emissions. Oh, you're talking it. about, right. yeah. Well, <laughs> but that did, obviously... Did you say population or population? <laughs> That obviously is related to fertility. I'm not okay. going to deny that. Listen, you're yeah. the one who, who bought fecundity into this. Oh, that's right. Go. That's right. So, so one could see that that you know the population is I love going it. to. Andrew's, Andrew's never done a show with me. He's sitting here just like I think Chuck is crazy. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. I love it. No, no. no. He's. He, I think he's digging it. <laughs> totally. So, so go ahead. So, so, so population is plausibly going to start to decline, and it's an interesting question of what what would we want it to be. I mean, mm-hmm. I, yeah. that's something I always ask people, and nobody's. A lot of people just haven't really thought about it. But then. Uh, and energy is clearly going to transform. We can't stay on fossil fuels for centuries and centuries because there won't be any. Right. So even if we're as stupid as we can be, which I know, Chuck, you're thinking, well, that's what we probably will be, <laughs> we're going to have to transform it. So, so we're going to get to a world where the different energy system and a lower population. Yeah. So that's believable to me. Okay. The avoiding calamity along the way, is that's an interesting, I'm not totally convinced. Well, just but there's ways to run those numbers. Uh, intensification of agriculture like getting more crops out of the same amount of land is already leading to what they call peak farmland. Peak farmland is like, you know, like peak oil, whatever. It means you don't have to keep chopping down more forests to grow more food. And that's already happening. We're seeing that happen. Um, the, The calamity right now is related to the things that could facilitate having a smoother ride. The calamity in Nigeria is that you have a very high fertility rate Girls are not getting – the main reason is girls can't go through high school. Mm-hmm. And they, the, the same people at IASA, this place in Vienna, they focused on the, the, the vital need for something. This is – how non-technological is this? How non-engineering is this? It's getting girls through high school is the single best way to basically have better outcomes all around, you know, health, um, lower fertility rates. Right. And not because someone enforced it, not because no. someone said you can't have more kids. And, and, and Nigeria, without girls getting through high school – is the difference between, um, well, by like 2070 or so, having 
300 million people in Nigeria or close to 800 million people just wow. in just Nigeria. Just wow. high school. Yeah. So, that, and that, so that's really stark. And then going back to this question, is it an engineering problem but that Rex Tillerson said? Well, yeah. how do you get girls through high school? That, that's, it's a problem you could, you could look at as a kind of engineering problem. Well, but but yeah, it's I, only, not, I only know it's how not, we get them through college. It's not building gizmos. Yeah, right. It's a different kind of problem. Write checks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> No, wow. so there are there are paths, and then that that tells me there's things you can work on. That, that and by the way, that isn't like the climate campaign community is not clamoring for girls' education in in Nigeria. Right. When I think uh, a sensible way to look at this problem is to say, well, by and by the way, if you want to reduce vulnerability to climate hazards, mm-hmm. meaning people in harm's way in sub-Saharan Africa, the same thing, the same process, get more education. Low fertility rates means your family will have an easier time of withstanding um, a, a drought or a famine or that kind of thing. Absolutely. So it's all like a no-brainer. But it requires this broader way of looking at the engineering problem, as you were saying. Right. Wow. Which, so. well, that's actually fascinating. I, you know, seriously, I'm actually feeling a little better. See? Good. See, Just we're working on better. you. It's but, good. you know, honestly, I also think that people are constitutionally optimist or pessimist to some degree. And I think... Part of my problem, maybe, if you want to call it a problem, is that um, I am constitutionally an optimist. And I think I get that from my mother, who it, it always has something good to say about every person in every situation. And so, if anything, is something I think I need to guard against. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? being too but, optimistic. Yeah, but yet at the same time, I mean, I went through this whole process of writing this book, and I talked to a lot of people, and I read a lot of studies. And a lot of what I did was... Uh, I had this whole section called uh, A Brief History of the Future where I read predictions about the future written in the past, like what people were saying about now 200 years ago and 100 years ago. I read a lot of that, and there's a section in the book called A Brief History of the Future. And I saw that... um, no, I concluded nobody can predict the future 100 years from now, not climate modelers, not futurists, not engineers, um, because it's always the game changers that come along and uh, in this very nonlinear way completely change everything. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we've got to act based on the knowledge we have and the path we have and do the best we can so that those, you know, those smart kids coming up now um, can take over the world in a, in a um, more hopeful position. But... Um, I'm optimistic because my reading of history partly tells me that um, there's all kinds of room for surprising changes, Mm -hmm. and some of them are going to be good, and we're going to take advantage of them. Hey everyone, it's Natalia Reagan for Star Talk All Stars. I am a primatologist and co-founder of the anthropology nonprofit Boaz Network. And here joining me is Tim Alexander, comedian extraordinaire. Hello. And today we're going to talk about a hot button subject that's not going to cool down anytime soon climate change. What we want to talk about is how climate change has been caused by humans and affected humans and also other species out there. And joining us in studio today, we have both biological anthropologist Dr. Todd Disatel of New York University. Hey, Natalia. Hey. (laughs) And Dr. Ian Tattersall, paleoanthropologist at the American Museum of Natural History and author of The Natural History of Wine. Hello. So, uh, climate change. Ah, It's uh, obviously on everybody's lips. And um, we want to talk a little bit about how uh, climate change is something that is not new to the world. There's been (laughs) multiple uh, events of of climate changing. But what makes this different? Well, we have a very good uh, record of climate change that goes really back as far as the... uh, 
the human family goes or the human ancestry goes and it's very clear that we've always lived in a world of unsettled environments and environments have regularly changed on a, on a, on a, on a quite quite short-term uh, basis but it's never really mattered before uh, because for most of our evolution we've been hunter-gatherers who could just move around if the shoreline uh, moved inland uh, our ancestors could just move right there along with it and it wouldn't perturb their way of life too much now we have this enormous amount of infrastructure which we've created and installed along the uh, the seaboards and which really is threatened by the latest uh, ra um, uh, round of uh, sea level rise due to climate change so we've kind of painted us into a corner with our advancements as a civilization in a way that's exactly right we have uh, we've established a way of life that depends on a stable geography and a stable geography is what we have not had in the past. Yeah, it would be nice if we could just pick up, you know, take kids, put them in the station wagon and just, you know, go somewhere and be like, oh, I'm going to sit down roots here and, you know, pick some berries, some shrubs, whatevs. Yeah, not quite that easy. Right? No, no. What about you, Todd? We're also contributing ourselves to it, which is something that's been very different than in the past. In the past, the Earth has actually been transformed by different kinds of life forms, so it's not unheard of for a species or a group of organisms to actually change the earth, even change its geology and its geography. Like cows and farts that we often hear about. Or, you know, <laughs> having bacteria sure. um, and getting an atmosphere, getting oxygen from them. Um, but what we're now pouring into the atmosphere is uh, accelerating what's probably a natural trend. And uh, I worry about a tipping point. And once we reach certain tipping points, we're going to see rapidly accelerated um, climate change. Yeah, I, we, I definitely want to go down that, that, that path because that's really what we want to talk about today. But are there other animals besides bacteria that have had like a major impact? Other animals besides ourselves and bacteria? that a major impact on climate that we can actually see? Um, I would say in some regions, um, you know, like the, the type of damage you see elephants do in mm -hmm. some regions oh, when they become overpopulated and deer. more or less deforest. Deer here on the east, well, actually nationwide, but on the east coast. Um, the lack of predators in some regions causing an entire ecological change, which actually changes the courses of rivers and all sorts of Absolutely, things. Absolutely, yeah. Because yeah. Beaver. Oh, beaver too, yeah. That, that's a big one. And uh, an interesting one is, is uh, gorillas, as a matter of fact. You know, we're all familiar with the gorilla display where uh, uh, males <laughs> charge around beating their chest, tearing up lumps of vegetation. Uh, around them and what this is actually doing it's not just social display in fact what's it doing is returning the uh, vegetation to a lower level of succession so that the plants will push out new shoots which is what the uh, the gorillas like to eat see see I mean, no oh, anger crazy. management classes for those guys we want to, we to keep them mad keep them pissed off that's amazing yeah well no it's just even i studied spider <laughs> monkeys and and you know them as seed dispersers is a, is a big deal. They actually eat the fruit and when they defecate, when they take their dump, they basically redistribute those seeds and hopefully, knock on wood, we get more spondius growing in different places, which they love to eat, so the cycle continues. Yeah, I, where else would you get your coffee beans from? Exactly, not, not monkey's butts, <laughs> monkey butt coffee. I'm gonna trademark that as soon as yeah, I leave. Yeah, I was just gonna say the same yeah. thing, like that's a good brand actually. Exactly, <laughs> uh, let's get on that guys. Uh, but, but, 
we, we've talked about how humans have, have been a part of affecting uh, the climate. How are we going to suffer aside from our cities, but things like, for instance, pathogens that might not be, um, well, spread in North America or, or coming north because it, as, as, as temperatures are rising, mosquitoes carrying these pathogens are well, affecting us. That, that's really scary. I, I actually teach a course on emerging diseases, and we're going to be watching with just, again, tipping points, just a few degrees of change in winter temperatures and stuff can allow certain species to survive through all year. And so I think, I predict we're gonna watch chukungunya and dengue and Zika um, creep northward. So out of the Florida Keys, out of the Miami area, eventually into Georgia and Virginia. And hmm. I mean, there was a time when uh, New York was practically uninhabitable because it was a malarial yellow fever swamp. Tens of thousands wow. of people yeah. died in Philadelphia and New York from yellow fever um, and malaria and all of those things. And those could reemerge here um, the fur further north into the United States than they are. No longer just a borderlands issue with just a few degrees change. And this is another reason why it's terrifying that we're cutting any sort of funding to medical research at this time because we need it now more than ever especially with obviously these pathogens coming further north but also I, I, I read recently that even frozen perhaps as ice sheets are melting there could potentially be bacteria in there that are waking up and not that right there is a great movie um, and that's <laughs> but yeah <laughs> let's well, get Michael Bay on that th think of the tens of thousands of bodies buried in the gulags permafrost that had I think about that all the time, Todd. I can't stop. Pox. And now those being unearthed. It, Oof. it already feels like like a like a horrible swamp. When you go in the subway, it already like it, it, the next month or two is just going to be a nightmare. To think it's going to be much much worse just by a couple of degrees changing. That's <laughs> I'm going to move to Maine. Back to Star Talk All Stars with the, your All Star <laughs> team here. We have Eugene Merman, my co host. We have Ken Kaldirev from uh, Stanford, who uh, is a climate scientist. And I'm your host, Seth Shostak from the lovely, glamorous SETI Institute. Uh, and by the way, we are broadcasting this episode from the studios of the SETI Institute. All right, now, Ken, look, you've sort of outlined you know, the, the, all the bad news about climate change. But doggone it, you know, people are thinking, well, what about all those windmills and the solar cells on the roof of my neighbor that, you know, bring about neighborhood blight or whatever? Uh, well, what about it? Are we making some progress here? And can this sort of thing, you know, solve the problem? First of all, let me just say that I only spoke about some of the bad news, not all of the bad news. Oh. But, but <laughs> in, in terms of uh, what we could do about it, this the, the two main sources of carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas emissions to the atmosphere are, are our energy system, mostly the burning of coal, oil, and gas, and then the cutting down of forests. The, uh, there are plenty of good replacements for coal, oil, and gas, and we can also use the coal and gas in ways that don't pollute the atmosphere. What are some ways you can use it without polluting the atmosphere? You mean like as a cream on your hands? No, people have talked about this idea of carbon capture and storage, that you could burn, say, coal in a power plant, but then 
grab the CO2 out of the smokestack and stuff it underground in geologic reservoirs. So basically, you take the carbon out of the ground, you burn it, and then put that carbon back underground. Is that safe or dangerous? Is that a realistic thing, or is that something like a kid suggested? Well, it's realistic, but it has the same kind of properties that fracking has, and that you are stuffing things underground, and you know that's yeah, this not is fracking a, in reverse. Is it what a conif frack or are you a conif frack or far for something? It's, uh, anyway, are you putting something poisonous in the ground? No, well, no. I mean, it. Well, you don't want too high concentrations of CO two. It's a little bit, uh, you know, it, it, it's not. Well, what about the oceans? Isn't the, the majority of all the CO2 in the oceans? Why don't you just pipe it into the ocean? Well, the problem with putting carbon dioxide in the oceans is that increases the acidity of the oceans, and that's bad for many marine organisms. Are we well. seeing that already? Yeah, we've done uh, work in Australia in the Great Barrier Reef, and for the first time we did an experiment where we put CO2 into a plume of seawater and let it drift over a, a coral reef, and we've shown that this uh, CO2 slows coral growth and then used that data and other data in model projections to uh, which show or at least what I believe is that within a few decades if we continue our current emissions there'll be no place left on the earth where with the kind of chemistry of seawater that can support coral reef growth. But, but let me push back on that just a little bit because you know we're talking about acidification of the oceans. It's a lot of Latin in there and I think that that's something that for a lot of people is about as clear as tensor calculus. All right, so suppose we do lose some coral in the sea. I mean, we lost all the trilobites hundreds of millions of years ago. Nobody seems to care. I, mean, I care. <laughs> they were my favorite food. And no. your ancestors, or maybe not. What, 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 about, what about this? I mean, what, what, what's the consequence down there? Well, I think there's at least two different uh, kinds of things. I mean, there's you know, people who depend on coral reefs for fishing and uh, and you know tourism and so on and then there's lots of marine species uh, some think up, up to nearly half of all species spending part of their life cycle in, in coral reefs and so there's a threat to biodiversity but there's also this kind of uh, you know canary in the coal mine aspect to it if coral reefs have been around for hundreds of millions of years then all of a sudden we show up on the scene and something that's survived for hundreds of millions of years can no longer make it on this planet you know, that might be some kind of wake-up call that maybe Sounds uh, like a perfectly natural cycle where humans <laughs> kill everything in the ocean. At least we know where Eugene stands on this. I mean, <laughs> Just, but, but, but really, I mean, you, you, I mean, he's got a point because you're asking for personal sacrifice here. And you yourself have argued that maybe this just fights against human nature, right? I mean, in, in, uh, our, our nature is nature. It's not nurture, right? We're kind of hardwired to be kind of selfish. And actually, you make an example of this in something you wrote about the coffee pot in the office. Maybe you could briefly uh, summarize that argument because it just, yeah. I thought it just defined the whole thing. Yeah, we, my office, uh, you know, we're full of people who say that oh, we're all going to work together to solve the climate change problem. And we can't even work together to keep our coffee pot full of a drinkable cup of coffee. And so as it runs down, you're, you're supposed to remake, the, the last person's supposed to make the coffee pot. And as it starts running down, people start taking half cups of coffee and you know, and it ends up being this kind of sludge that's. Well, what if you said that if you don't refill the coffee, all your fish will die? Maybe people would definitely be like, you know what? 
I'm going to make some more coffee. Well, we've thought of taking the, you know, there's an old National Lampoon cover of like, buy this magazine or we'll kill this dog. And we were thinking like, oh, we should just say, look, if this coffee runs out, we'll just kill this dog. And maybe that would do yeah, it. Yeah, but, but, but that's using a whip rather than an <laughs> inducement, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But, but to get back to the the other question about yeah, sorry what to we go do down with the... energy, <laughs> down that rabbit hole, the... Um, Apologies to yeah, the dogs. Yeah, that there have been a number of studies now that show that we could reduce around 80% of the carbon dioxide emissions from the electric sector with wind and solar power, and that we can then electrify much of the rest of the economy. And so, and this also, it's controversial, but some people think that nuclear power could be made cheap and affordable. And then there's these ideas of using carbon capture and storage. We see electric cars coming in. And, and so there's a whole range of technology options, and these options are getting much cheaper. And, and so it, it's seeming increasingly technically feasible to have a good productive economy and sustain economic yeah, growth. But all you're saying is it's becoming easier and easier to be a good kid. But what's the incentive for the kid? Well, this is the problem. It's the collective action problem in that, you know, if, if, uh, if you have a lump of coal and, you know, you're – cold somewhere, then, you know, you'll have incentive to burn this lump of coal. And the, if you don't burn it, well, people all around the world will benefit and people for thousands of years into the future will benefit. And this this is the fundamental uh, problem of climate change. I think if there were really one sort of benevolent dictator of the world, <laughs> then we would just solve the maybe, problem right away. Maybe it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> that... that uh, you know, if there were, but but I think where, where you have lots of people each acting in their own self-interest is really hard, and which is why people suggest, well, we need to have regulations about how, how about much carbon tax, but also carbon tax, these kind if, of approaches. If these alternative sources of energy become basically just as viable and, and profitable, I mean, is really partially the answer that just solar has to be more profitable? Like humans won't help themselves until it's profitable to, and that, easy. Uh, I mean, there's a number of people. I, I mean, Google had a project, and Bill Gates has been trying to do this. Can we, with innovation, try to bring down the costs of clean energy technologies? Yeah. And if you could eventually make a clean energy technology cheaper than coal and natural gas, well, then that would just take off on its own. That's a pretty optimistic view. Well, oh. well is it? Because they say that... Uh, these days, you know, the cost of solar panels has gone down quite a bit. And that, in fact, uh, as a homeowner, at least, it might be cheaper for you to put those panels on the roof than to buy it from the, you know, the local utility department. Yeah. The difference between electricity from a coal plant and electricity from a solar panel is you can get electricity from the coal plant at night. <laughs> and and batteries are still super expensive. And, and it's really... So we need more awesome batteries. Yeah. No, if we had awesome batteries, as you say, then... Doing this uh, energy system transition uh, would be much easier. I have a postdoc working on this issue, and basically, with today, we should get a second person. We, yeah, that, <laughs> we, we, <laughs> we could have more than one person yeah. working on this. But no, if imagine we, two no, but, people working yeah, on this. So we might crisis. actually solve the problem. No, but actually, this is one of the issues that this is sort of you know, there's this huge giant global problem, and it's like, you know potentially trillions of dollars a year spent to solve Has anyone it. emailed Energizer? And, and uh, you know, and then there, it's being worked on on kind of shoestring uh, budgets. It, well, but. well, let me ask you this, because, you know, you see it with cars, you know, they have limited range, the electric cars, it's all batteries, it's all batteries. So if you, I mean, if you, for example, doubled 
the efficiency, the capability of batteries. Just double it. Not, not improve it by 10 times, but if you just doubled it, would, would that make the difference? Yeah. Or do you have to do well, orders of magnitude No, this is it. You know, like right now, batteries, the measure, like how much does it cost per kilowatt hour batteries? Right. And right now, it's something like $400. And you oh, know, there's a study. Nowhere close. And there's a study that if it was like a dollar, then, you know, then the renewables could take I, I can buy it from the power plant for so 20 cents. So it needs cents, to be right? yeah, yeah. 400 yeah. times better? Yeah. You, and you have of, a guy working on this. Maybe if they would be 100. We know he's not working on the battery. He's doing just the analysis. But yeah, basically, if batteries got 100 All times All right. Forget cheaper, that approach. Let's yeah. try some other approach. No, I no, no. no. Wait. Not, what's the actual? Is it if batteries got 100 times uh, better? Yeah, 100 times better, we'd be in good shape. I, I got to say, Ken, I made a calculation a couple of years ago, just you know, probably wrong. but I, And I worked out what would happen if you painted all the highways in the United States white? Right, because they're yeah you know, they're mostly macadam they're you know whatever and you know they they don't reflect much of the sunlight back up into space right they they just absorb it heat up and contribute to global warming and I worked out how many you know how much energy you would save uh, in the Earth's atmosphere if you just paint all the highways white and it turned out to be enough to stop the melting of Greenland um, you don't have to comment on that I just thought you might want to go out and paint. The, you know, the, yeah. the driveway white. So, so if we maybe got a few other countries to join in our, our <laughs> freeway painting exercise? Yeah, we've done calculations. The freeway painting is just not anywhere It's not on? Okay. It's not we put a lot of people enough. into work. I, what if France also joined us? <laughs> well. But the same idea. I mean, there's this idea of putting particles in the stratosphere to reflect sunlight. And that seems feasible, but the painting of the surfaces. Here's the obvious solution. And people have been saying this for at least 30 or 40 years, right? We just put up satellites that have a lot of solar cells, right? And they, they collect sunlight in orbit there, right? Convert it into electricity and then beam that electricity down to some antenna farm in New Mexico or something on a on microwave. It's totally harmless. And then distribute it with wires around the country. You don't burn anything. Free energy after the capital cost. Free energy forever. Don't burn anything. Don't put anything in the atmosphere. Why aren't we doing that? I don't know. Exxon well, would probably love that plan if you told them that they could be a totally non-profitable company <laughs> the, <laughs> with just uh, an expenditure of capital. Putting the satellite in space uh, gets you something like a factor of four by the time you get transmission losses than having the solar panels on Earth. Another approach to- You are the, really an energy buzzkill. <laughs> uh, another approach to doing the same thing is to get a global electric grid. And Buckminster Fuller actually proposed this, that you have a grid so that you could have the solar cells on the day side of the planet wheeling energy over to the night side of the planet. Yeah, yeah. And that's, high, high voltage wires going yeah. everywhere. And that's probably more feasible than the solar power satellites. But I have friends that are big fans of solar power. So oh, well, I'll disinvest. <laughs> yeah. Once I'm sure that maybe in conjunction with ISIS, we can get we can do this. OK. So uh, what, what do you what do you tell your your neighbors to do? Because they're all a bunch of individuals. It's, it's one thing to tell the local utility company, you know, stop burning that coal. Uh, I, I tell my neighbors to vote for politicians who will put good uh, climate policy into action. Yeah, and are they doing that? I hope they are. In I, San Francisco, yeah, his yeah, neighbors are doing that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>